Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, our participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Chris, uh, Misty, and I would like to um, uh, also welcome everyone to today's uh, program. And today's program is titled, What's New in Diagnostic Technologies for People Living with Solid Cancer Tumors? And today's pro program is a uh, partnership with AMP, uh, Association for Molecular Pathology and Cancer Care. And today's program is supported by Mirati Therapeutics, Inc., Pfizer, and Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have many of you on the call today. There's over 202 participants on today's program, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Lithuania, Nigeria, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a, um, a global call, um, and um, we're delighted to have all of you on the program today. And, um, and also choosing to spend the next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask all of you. And, um, and those questions are be, will be visible to all of you who are live streaming the program, and um, they help us to tailor the programs going forward. We're planning many programs in 2022, and this way we will get your feedback about the program today. It will help us to plan future programs. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand how diagnostic technologies transform the treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, genomics, targeted therapies, and precision medicine in informing the treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of the pathologist in the diagnosis and treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand the role of diagnostic technologies in predicting hereditary risk. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be our last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for diagnostic technologies for solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everybody for participating in these questions. It really helps us to, um, to plan going forward. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Ruane Chair in Thoracic Oncology. He's attending physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing definition of diagnostic technologies and their role in the choice of treatment for solid cancer tumors, how diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, genomics, and precision medicine inform and transform the treatment of lung cancer, and the role of clinical trials. 
It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, thanks all for joining us today. So I'm a medical oncologist, uh, and I, I care for persons with lung cancers and do research in that area. So you're going to hear a lot of lung cancer focus in, in my words uh, today. Um, uh, first, a word about the diagnosis of cancer. Uh, it is uh, super critical. It must always be 100% correct. And there's really only one person who can diagnose cancer, and that is a pathologist. We'll have a, uh, a real card-carrying pathologist uh, later on in this call today. Um, but they are the only ones that can diagnose cancer, and they do it by examining cancer cells under the microscope. They look at tissue. They may look at a body fluid for these cancer cells, but they must see cancer cells under the microscope. And uh, there is no diagnosis of cancer without them. Uh, I bring that up, too, because it talks about the necessity of biopsy. Uh, and at the time of the biopsy, the necessity to get all the tissue that the pathologist needs to make an accurate diagnosis. Uh, a reminder, there is no scan that can diagnose cancer. I'll repeat it. No scan can diagnose cancer. There's also no blood test in uh, 20. Uh, 21 that can diagnose cancer either. It is a pathologist looking at cancer cells under the microscope. That's where the diagnosis happens. Uh, after that diagnosis is made, what, what are the next steps? Well, the next one is to get information as to the site of origin of the cancer. Uh, please remember, even though there may be uh, cancer found in the lung, it could be cancer from somewhere else in the body spreading to the lung. Uh, and it's absolutely critical for uh, that determination to be made, and, and we'll hear more, I think, about the tools pathologists have to do that. Once they uh, have uh, that information, um, the next step is to make what they call the histologic diagnosis. There are many different appearances of cancer under the microscope, and in the treatment of lung cancer, different uh, cancer appearances lead to different therapies. So there is a need to have uh, 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 testing, uh, usually done by something called an immunohistochemistry test. It's a stain for certain proteins, and it helps the pathologist tell whether a lung cancer is an adenocarcinoma, a squamous cell carcinoma, or a small cell lung cancer. There are some other rare types of cancer. But this histologic cell type is critical because it, it tells the medical oncologist uh, what is the best uh, systemic treatment and, and what systemic treatments could be best paired with radiation or surgery. Now, that decision of how to choose the best systemic treatment in 2021 hinges tremendously uh, on the additional testing that's done by the pathologist, both immunohistochemistry tests and tests of the DNA uh, in the cancer cells. The big immunohistochemistry test that's done uh, for people with lung cancers and many other uh, solid cancers is so-called PDL1. Um, and this test can tell a cancer's uh, propensity to benefit from immune treatments. Uh, so it's a critical test. It's done on the tissue or on the cells uh, taken from a body fluid, and it's a test done by immunohistochemistry. I, I think now, uh, I think those many of you that signed up today uh, want to hear about DNA tests, and, and they're common. They're super critical. 
the the one that we use the most uh, now is something you may hear called you know NGS next generation sequencing, and what that does is it uh, allows the testing of uh, specific uh, identification rather of specific uh, types of damage in the DNA that is characteristic of a certain pattern of growth of the cancer. And when these DNA changes, they're generally mutations, uh, there's something called fusions. Um, When these things happen, they impart a characteristic to the cancer cell that makes it vulnerable. The term Achilles heel has been thrown out there. And when you find this, it generally leads to a specific therapy. The other thing that can be obtained from these uh, uh, tests are other general characteristics of the cancer. Very important for lung cancer is something called the tumor mutation burden, where the um, molecular pathologist estimates uh, how many different mutations are there, and the higher number of mutations that you find, uh, generally the greater susceptibility to a uh, immune therapy. There's other ones called microsatellite instability, important with a lot of different cancers, particularly gastrointestinal cancers, and Dr. Benson may be talking about them. So where do you get the material to do this? Um, Generally, we get tissue or we get blood. Now, tissue is the best. Uh, Tissue gives you the most uh, uh, accurate and comprehensive determination of the DNA changes in the cancer cells. However, you must have sufficient tissue, and to get tissue requires a biopsy. And sometimes biopsies can be difficult, um, and sometimes uh, they um, they do not yield sufficient uh, tissue to uh, give the pathologist what they need, the molecular pathologist, to get this information. Blood is a, I'll call it a close second to tissue for getting this information. However, it is somewhat less accurate. Again, in the lung cancer field, If 100% of genetic changes are found on tissue, 75% approximately are found on the blood. If an abnormality is found on blood, you can go to the bank with it. Um, However, it's not quite as, I'll call it, comprehensive as the tissue test. And very often, if you have a negative blood, so-called negative blood test, it would necessitate your doctor recommending a tissue test. The other thing that the blood doesn't do is sometimes there are changes in cancer cells in their appearance that help direct doctors to therapy. And you don't, you can't obviously see the uh, cancer cells appearance uh, in the DNA taken from the blood. You need a tissue specimen. So many times blood doesn't uh, give you the answer. When it doesn't give you the answer, it may then necessitate a tissue test. How long do these tests take? The blood tests are generally quicker than the tissue test. Uh, Results can come as soon as three or four business days. Uh, At some centers, it could take as much as uh, 10 business days, but it's generally pretty quick. The NGS testing, the comprehensive tissue-based testing, that takes longer. Uh, I think a good rule of thumb would be it takes two weeks from the time that the laboratory gets that specimen. Many things need to be done to the specimen, And I should also add that this is not simply a blood test where you put a specimen in a machine and a result pops out. The results coming from these machines are all examined by an attending pathologist. 
and uh, with a particular look to the uh, the relevance of that finding uh, for uh, a cancer diagnosis and treatment. So a pathologist always looks for that, and it takes time. So how do you deal with this? Number one, be expect and I would say even demand that when cancer is suspected, sufficient tissue is obtained for the pathologist to uh, establish the diagnosis by vision, to do additional immunohistochemistry testing to help them establish the site and characteristics of the cancer, and sufficient tissue to uh, allow extraction of the DNA for the NGS testing. Um, it's a work in progress uh, where this is done automatically, um, but I think more and more it's going to be the standard and expect the uh, person doing a biopsy to say to you that you're going to need all this tissue. The last thing is this waiting is very, very difficult. And uh, it's a real diff a tough decision to know, do you wait for the results of genetic tests? We do have therapies that can be given to patients regardless of their genetic tests. Generally, the kind of, I'll call them traditional intravenous chemotherapies are helpful regardless of the genetic profile or the pd one status. However, we use that extra information to um, choose the best therapy, a more precise treatment decision, and it's a difficult decision how long you wait to do that. That's something that you and your healthcare team need to work together, and it's not a one-time decision. If your health changes during that waiting period, you must bring it to the attention of the doctor. So we have so many more tools now to better diagnose cancer, to better choose therapies based on that diagnosis. Uh, talk to your docs about it. It's extremely complicated. It's changing, and the only uh, you can't be expected to know about this, but work with your healthcare team to get the information you need uh, and let them know uh, where you are in your health to help know what kind of delays are acceptable or not. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding and a wonderful way to start the program, explaining um, the importance of obtaining adequate tissue. All the information that you gave was just wonderful, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much and the role of the pathologist, which we'll be hearing later on from, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III, and Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing how diagnostic technologies inform and transform the treatment of colorectal cancer, targeted therapies and predicting hereditary risk of colorectal cancer, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, follow-up care, quality of life, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and all joining today. Uh, Dr. Chris nicely set the stage for some of my remarks. Um, it is increasingly recognized through technology, including much more in-depth evaluation of colorectal cancer tumors, that colorectal tumors are not all the same. Therefore, there is increasing emphasis on evaluating each person's tumor to create a biologic profile using tumor from the patient's actual colon or rectal cancer or from a metastatic tumor, such as from the liver, or from the patient's blood. Evaluating tumor biology is even more complicated, 
since a colorectal tumor is not just one type of tumor cell, but a collection of different tumor cells, which can vary within an individual as well as from one person to another. This phenomenon is called tumor heterogeneity and creates challenges as to which of the tumor cells are contributing to tumor growth, which are most resistant to treatment, and what drugs might be most effective to stop growth. There have been advances in colorectal cancer linked to the study of biology through molecular profiling of tumors and next-generation sequencing, as has been mentioned by Dr. Chris. A very important newer area of technology advancement is the ability to locate circulating tumor DNA in the patient's blood, looking for potential treatment targets, but also evaluating patients to see who is most likely to recur from their original colorectal cancer and if treatment is being effective. This type of research is now actively being conducted through clinical trials and we would certainly urge people to participate in these trials whenever possible. The majority of individuals do not have inheritable colorectal cancer, but it is important to identify these individuals since these are the people most likely to benefit from immunotherapy. In addition, those with inherited cancers differ in terms of surgical considerations, type of surveillance after treatment is complete, and the need to test family members since those who are positive by testing need genetic counseling and appropriate screening. Those who have inherited cancers most often have Lynch syndrome. The tumor test we look for is called MSI, known as microsatellite instability, or uh, another type of test which is known as deficient mismatch repair. And mismatch repair is now routinely uh, evaluated by the pathologist. However, all told, about 15% or so of people have MSI tumors, and not all of these are inherited. These individuals also can benefit from immunotherapy. In addition, there are other biologic tests we perform, particularly for those with metastatic disease and for which there are now specific treatments. These include RAS testing, BRAF testing, and HER2 testing. It has been a struggle to identify uh, treatments for people with RAS mutated tumors, but currently there are trials with new drugs that appear to help some people with certain subtypes of RAS uh, mutations. To move on now to telemedicine, um, I would say that much can be discussed during the telemedicine visit to fully inform your clinician as to how you are doing, how you are tolerating treatment, and what symptoms you are experiencing. With video conferencing, and we know that's not always available for all people, but it's also possible to conduct a, a limited physical exam, such as looking at your skin, your eyes, and your mouth. In terms of the telemedicine, it's important to prepare as you might for a regular office visit. You should write down your questions to address. You should write down your symptoms. You should have family members and friends join in. 
you should make sure to review recent labs, procedures, scan results during the visit, and uh, also to review when a telemedicine visit is really adequate for your assessment and when an office visit should resume. If there are planned delays in procedures or treatments or tests, or, or if you are requesting such, make sure to discuss the risks versus benefits of any delay since you don't want to jeopardize the potential benefits of evaluation or treatments. And therefore, it is imperative to discuss how long of a delay would be considered uh, safe. And finally, to uh, mention a little bit about quality of life and open notes. So it's important to discuss issues around quality of life with your healthcare team, and as well as your individual goals of care. What is of most value to you, and what are your expectations about your disease and treatment? You also should evaluate what are the risks of side effects of treatment versus the potential to control the cancer or prevent recurrence. In terms of open notes, uh, your medical record is available to you for review, and uh, that would include the uh, uh, physicians or notes from other members of your healthcare team. Keep in mind that these records are documents using medical terminology, which is critical to accurately describe procedures, as well as other types of reports, and important communication among healthcare personnel. There may be much that you do not understand in looking at these records, but you should write the questions you might have about what you've read and address these with your healthcare team. If you feel something is incorrect or missing, you can also discuss those issues uh, with your team. Uh, that concludes uh, my remarks, and uh, I'll turn this over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really excellent and just outstanding and uh, really addressing so many issues. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein, and Dr. Hussein is the lead physician, um, breast medical oncology, MD Anderson at Cooper Cancer Center. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing discussion of how diagnostic technologies, genomics, and genetics inform treatment decisions for breast cancer, updates on the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, and preventing and managing treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19, Delta, and Omicron. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, so building on um, what my colleagues have been discussing uh, and their excellent talks, um, my main focus is breast cancer, so you'll see a lot of my remarks are, are geared in that direction. Now, breast cancer is a uh, disease with the first targeted therapies that we have a companion diagnostic test for. So we routinely would test for estrogen, progesterone, and the HER2 positivity in every newly diagnosed breast cancer. 
And now we have numerous receptor-directed therapies that have dramatically changed the natural history of what we expect from that disease. Uh, we now know that cancers are unique, just like uh, the individual patients that are afflicted by these diseases. And this is where uh, the term precision oncology comes in, where we try to, to treat every patient's cancer in a tailored fashion. Um, as my colleague mentioned also, we uh, do have the test called NGS, or Next Generation Sequencing. And those can normally sequence billions of base pairs of DNA in a time and a cost-efficient manner and can, can detect very rare mutations in DNA populations. And that gives us a chance to capture genomic regions of interest. Um, germline panel gene testing is now becoming standard of care for some of the subtypes of breast cancer. And some of those genes, if identified, we do have what we call a therapeutic actionability or a treatment that is geared toward those mutations. And a very famous example that a lot of patients know about is the detection of the BRCA mutation and the use of oral agents called PARP inhibitors. We also have uh, liquid biopsies now available, which can detect the cell-free DNA, which refers to the small DNA fragments that are shed by all the cells in the circulation. And another terminology is circulating DNA, which refers to the DNA shed specifically by the tumor cells in the circulation. So continuing with, on with uh, the theme of breast cancer, so focusing on the hormone receptor positive subtype, since this is the most common subtype, um, recently we had um, um, a lot of uh, review results from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is the largest breast cancer symposium every year. And they reviewed in that conference that the ER-positive or estrogen-receptor-positive breast cancer has a wide genomic variability between tumors and that um, the subtypes, intrinsic subtypes, which are defined by how likely are they or how um, similar are they to the gene expressions leading to the generation of different types that behave and respond to therapies in a different way, so they call them luminal A and luminal B subtypes, and both behave in a different way. We also learned that the estrogen environment affects the whole process of gene transcription, and they also talked about some mutations like a mutation called TP53 that has strong prognostic significance above some molecular profiling tests. Uh, currently, there's a lot of work that's being done in order to clarify the different pathways of endocrine resistance that could develop, and they're trying to identify new targets to identify the tumors that carry hot immune features. Um, many presentations in that conference discuss the use of circulating DNA in the follow-up of metastatic disease and to see the response to treatment and detect new targets. So a quick example that was mentioned is the detection of a mutation called ESR1, and that has been linked to resistance to endocrine therapy with aromatase inhibitors. And when that is detected, normally we would think about switching therapy to a different agent in the category of CERDs or the selective estrogen receptor down regulators. So, 
discussing some of the updates that came out of the San Antonio conference for the metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Uh, there was a clinical trial called the Keynote C55 clinical trial, which has shown us that when we combine chemotherapy to immunotherapy, a type of immunotherapy called pembrolizumab, there was a statistical improvement in survival and progression-free survival. So progression-free survival means the length of time that the patient with metastatic disease gets to live and their disease continues to be controlled, so it is not progressing. And the overall survival is self-explanatory. In this conference, um, they try to identify how likely is a metastatic triple negative breast cancer to respond to that combination. So they used a score called the CPS, or the Combined Positive Score, and they put a lot of different cutoffs, less than one, one to nine, 10 uh, to 19, and more than 20 or equal to 20. And they concluded that patients who score more than or equal to 10 usually could derive that benefit. Another exciting trial that they reviewed is called the Tropion study. And that was an early phase one study that showed that in patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer that have been treated by multiple agents, so they're heavily pretreated, the use of a molecule called antibody drug conjugate, where they link a chemotherapy to an antibody um, and the antibody that is expressed on the surface of the cancer cells. The antibody drug conjugate in that trial was called DATO-DXD. We have seen actually encouraging results and a durable efficacy. They saw that more than 34% of the patients had a response to that treatment. And it seemed to be overall very well tolerated with some nausea and inflammation of the inner lining of the mouth called stomatitis. Now switching gears and discussing the updates in the hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, they reviewed an update for a subgroup analysis of a clinical trial called the Mona Lisa II trial that previously showed us that there is an improvement in survival with the use of letrozole, which is one of the aromatase inhibitors, and ribocyclib, one of the CDK46 inhibitors. And they showed that the median survival improved from 51.4 months to 63.9 months, such an impressive improvement, really. And in this analysis in the conference, they showed that the survival was seen regardless of the place where the metastatic disease is found in the body. So whether it involved the bones only or whether it involved other organs like the liver and lungs. And it was also seen regardless of how many metastatic spots were found in the body. Less than three, more than three, everybody benefited. And whether the patient received prior chemotherapy or what type, whatever type of hormonal therapy, the, the benefit was continuously seen in all of those subgroups. So the combination of the CDK4-6 inhibitors or the cyclin D kinase 4 and 6 inhibitors along with a hormonal partner has transformed the disease outcome for the hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. However, developing um, resistance to those combinations continues to be a constant threat. 
to us and to our patients. And the available therapeutic options are limited. So there is a lot of work right now that is being done to understand how the resistance happens, what mechanisms, so that we can develop new protocols to address those. There was a very interesting clinical trial uh, named the PADA-1 trial. And this one, as I mentioned previously quickly, um, looked at the development of this ESR1 mutation. So they monitored that using circulating DNA in order to optimize the hormonal therapy partner with the CDK4-6 inhibitor. In this trial, they used uh, palpocycline as the CDK4-6 inhibitor. Um, and in this trial, they were able to show that upon the ESR1 detection, the progression-free survival was doubled when they switched the treatment from an aromatase inhibitor and palpocycline compared to fulvestrin and palpocycline. The last one in this subset, last clinical trial, was the Emerald Phase three clinical trial, which looked at a new molecule called Elacestrin. So this is the first, um, or this is a first in a class uh, of drugs called oral SIRDs. So again, SIRDs are the selective estrogen receptor down regulators. And normally we have the only FDA available CERD in the market is an intramuscular injection. Now they're trying to develop a lot of molecules in an oral form. So here they used alacestrant versus investigator's choice hormonal therapy as a monotherapy in the ER-positive metastatic breast cancer following progression on prior hormonal therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. And in this trial, they showed evidence of an improvement in the risk of progression uh, compared to standard of care. Um, overall, very well tolerated. The last subset of metastatic breast cancer is a HER2-positive um, breast cancer, and they presented new data from key subgroups in uh, a very exciting clinical trial called the DESTINY-03 clinical trial, which is a phase three trial that compared the use of trastuzumab deroxycan versus trastuzumab intensi. And this was in patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. And they showed an improvement in progression-free survival that was really quite impressive. And the difference between the two curves was quite remarkable. Uh, one major concern about that molecule on the earlier stage trial is um, the development of what we call interstitial lung disease. Thankfully, in the larger trial, which was a phase three trial, no high-grade interstitial lung disease was recorded. So that gave us a lot of comfort regarding the safety of using this agent. Um, last couple of words about symptom management. Um, some of the reviewed data in the conference was quite exciting uh, regarding the potential use of minimal risk modalities like acupuncture in the management of musculoskeletal pain, hot flashes, uh, insomnia, and even potentially um, mitigating chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. And they showed some potential significant benefits. And they also saw data reviewing the potential benefit of botanical cannabis as a useful adjunct 
to the standard treatments in alleviating side effects of cancer or treatment-related side effects. And although the preclinical findings are promising, there is really no convincing evidence as of yet in the medical literature supporting anti-tumor activity of cannabis or cannabinoids. With that, I want to thank you for being patient and listening, and back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was really an extraordinary, excellent presentation and um, really covering a lot of very relevant issues for the breast cancer community and, and for cancer in general, but a lot of very uh, useful information for the breast cancer community. So thank you so much, really covering quite a, um, a broad uh, area. So thank you. And also the treatment side effect management was really interesting. I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Amelia Calvarasi. And uh, Dr. Kavarasi is a, medical, a molecular pathologist. Uh, she is associate staff, section of molecular pathology, laboratory medicine, Cleveland Clinic, member patient engagement subcommittee of the Association of Molecular Pathology, or AMP. And um, AMP is, of course, a, uh, as a partner organization on today's program. And Dr. Kavarasi will be ad addressing the role of the pathologist how diagnostic technologies inform treatment decisions, and she'll also be discussing the free programs of the Association of Molecular Pathology. Um, and so it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Calvarasi. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with all of you today. Um, so to start off with the basics, um, so pathologists are medical doctors uh, we graduate from medical school and then we do residency and often one or more fellowships to learn how to make diagnoses from biopsy samples uh, and to develop and interpret testing in a clinical laboratory. Um, so in my subspecialty, which is molecular pathology, we work with teams of highly trained clinical laboratory scientists, laboratory genetic counselors, and board-certified PhDs to perform genetic testing and interpret the results of those tests for all types of cancers. While we don't directly see and treat patients, we do work closely with oncologists and we're members of institutional tumor boards where we talk about specific patient cases to help match the test results to treatments in clinical trials. Um, so thinking about um, what are the tools in a pathologist's uh, toolbox for the management of solid tumors, um, so there's four major categories. Um, the first is tissue examination. When we look at um, a biopsy under a microscope, um, various infections to be able to see individual cells. Um, and there we're looking for abnormal-looking cells or abnormal-looking patterns that could clue us into a particular uh, type of diagnosis. Um, the second tool are um, IHD, immunohistochemistry staining. So um, on the biopsy samples, we can um, stain to look at certain protein, protein expression. Uh, so some examples of that are uh, PD-L1, as my colleagues have mentioned. Um, so there are companion diagnostic IHG stains um, for PD-L1 for many tumor types. The, the number is increasing every year that help qualify patients for uh, PD-1 immunotherapies. Um, and a second uh, common example is in the treatment of uh, colon cancer and endometrial cancer is we do stains for mismatch repair to screen for Lynch syndrome. Um, and then if those are um, abnormal, then we reflex to other testing to be able to make that diagnosis. 
the third tool in our toolbox are FISH, uh, which is uh, an acronym for fluorescence in situ hybridization. Um, so these are DNA probes that we can use to pick up large genetic changes. Um, these include things like um, translocations and fusions, where you know, a piece of one chromosome attaches to a piece of a different chromosome, um, or uh, deletions um, or amplifications of certain regions of uh, DNA. And these can help make a diagnosis of a particular type of tumor. Um, often they also can provide information about the prognosis. And sometimes uh, it uncovers uh, changes that are targetable by certain drugs. Uh, and then the fourth major tool in our toolbox um, are sequencing studies for uh, both DNA and uh, RNA. So, excuse me. Um, so for those, um, we can look at single genes um, to find driver mutations. Um, but more commonly these days, uh, we're looking at uh, next generation sequencing, which has a much larger scope. And I'm not going to talk much about it, but an emerging technology in um, our field um, are liquid biopsies that um, take blood samples from cancer patients. And using uh, high throughput sequencing are able to detect specific mutations at a very low level in uh, cancer patients' blood. So I am going to talk more in depth about uh, next generation sequencing. Um, so to do that, we take a small sample from a cancer biopsy and extract its genetic material. And then we amplify it through a process called the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which is the same technique that is also used to um, detect the um, genetic material from the COVID-19 virus. Um, so when we do that for a cancer patient, we will then compare it to their normal, uh, to a, like a, a reference sequence of a normal uh, human genome and find what's changed, what are the mutations. And then we will determine if those changes are significant because there's a multitude of databases out there that um, classify variants and talk about how many times they've been reported in different types of tumors. And um, often the primary literature uh, in PubMed is also a great resource, as well as looking to see if this a variant that's seen in a normal population through um, a lot of data that's been gathered on uh, people without cancer. So um, we prepare a report with the findings and we highlight any mutations that we think are significant. Um, and increasingly these days, instead of just sequencing a few genes, we're actually sequencing the entire exome of a person, which is all of the DNA that makes proteins. And in many cases, we're also sequencing a transcriptome, which is all of the coding RNA, um, to learn as much as we can about the person's cancer. Uh, there's even some artificial intelligence-assisted algorithms these days that can use a genetic signature of a tumor to predict its tissue of origin if it can't be determined by other means. So the data that we generate from these sequencing studies can enable oncologists to prescribe targeted therapies for a person's cancer, as well as in some cases discover germline DNA variants, which are variants that are present in every cell of your body and not just your, cancer tum not just your uh, tumor cells. Um, and these may have a role in a cancer predisposition syndrome so that a cancer patient and their family can get proper genetic counseling. When we sequence a cancer's genome, we generate so much data these days 
So another exciting development is being able to discover new recurrent variants and different types of cancer that in the future might lead to more targeted therapies, earlier diagnosis and improved survival. Uh, right now for certain types of blood cancers, uh, we're able uh, to predict the development of some types of them years in advance using uh, next generation sequencing studies. So hopefully in the not so distant future, we'll be able to do the same for solid tumors. It's a very exciting time to be in this field because it's moving so rapidly and having so much benefit on the treatment of so many types of cancer. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about the diagnostic work we do, the Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, has a lot of great resources aimed at cancer patients and their loved ones. AMP is very involved in patient care by producing clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists and ordering physicians. Uh, in addition to strong advocacy work to help improve insurance coverage for these crucial tests. Uh, personally, I've been fortunate to serve on uh, the AMP's Professional Relations Committee for the last few years, and one of our focuses is on patient outreach and education, such as working closely with patient advocacy groups and helping to sponsor lunch and learns and educational workshops like this one. Another project we've been working on for a few years now is developing a patient-facing website that provides educational information in a clear, easy-to-understand way. You can find our website at outreach.amp.org. It's still a work in progress, but right now we have an overview of what occurs in a molecular diagnostic lab, in addition to descriptions of types of molecular tests, such as DNA sequencing. We have some free, frequently asked questions, some infographics, uh, and some uh, educational resources that we're working to update frequently. Um, I, I believe the link to this patient-facing website will be distributed after the call today. Uh, we invite you to look it over, and please feel free to contact us with any suggestions for additional material. Um, so with that, thank you for your time, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Calvary. That was an, a really an excellent presentation from a pathologist's perspective and also in providing us um, really information about um, AMP and uh, as a resource. And we will be, so after today's program, uh, probably tomorrow, you'll all be receiving a survey monkey. It's an evaluation um, where you can comment on the program. But we also provide resources for you, and these resources will be available for you um, so that you'll be able to access the um, um, the AMP website and um, email them and uh, and call them if you have further questions um, in terms of just accessing all those materials that that Dr. Calvarese uh, mentioned. Okay, and um, and now um, so thank you very much, Dr. Calvarese. That was really excellent and outstanding. And now um, I'm going to say just a few words about cancer care. Um, I just want to um, let you know the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization. It is staffed primarily by oncology social workers, and we have a hope line. You can call a number 800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers. And let me just go over with you the free services you can access. Often when people call our hope line, they have a specific issue or question that they will discuss with the social worker. Um, but also, we do offer practical and financial assistance um, to people, and that's very important at this time. Um, it's always been important, but it's particularly important now. Um, we also offer 
case management services, which means we have a whole team of people that if we don't have the services, they will take you virtually to resources that could help you. So they won't just give you a list of places to call. They will actually go with you virtually um, together and be sure that we can get the resources you need. Many people have issues around food insecurity, about financial issues, issues that are larger than what we can provide. We also have a co-payment assistance program, and that provides just a wonderful, um, generous um, uh, um, financial assistance for your treatments, often chemotherapy treatments. And so that's a, a wonderful resource as well. We offer online support groups. So people really like those because they're not time-specific. Um, that you can log on to them any time of the day or night. Um, and um, we have them on all different types of cancers, so all the cancers that we've discussed today. We also have them for people who are, are younger adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, um, uh, parents, um, really for everybody. Um, there's groups for, for all different populations and all different types of cancers. Um, we also have our coping circles, which are national groups that are, um, are small groups that allow people to discuss a particular topic, um, and people find those very, very helpful. Um, and we also offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year, on different types of cancers or cancer-related issues. And we also have a number of publications as well. So with that being said, um, we, um, before we go into our Q&A, so get your questions ready because we're going to go into the Q&A very shortly with all of our speakers. Before we do that, I'm just going to ask you a few more questions. Um, and so... Um, those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions and will be able to respond to the questions. So this is the first question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how diagnostic technologies transform the treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, genomics, targeted therapies, and precision medicine in informing the treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of the pathologist in the diagnosis and treatment of solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of diagnostic technologies in predicting hereditary risk. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for diagnostic technologies for solid cancer tumors. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everybody for participating in these questions. It really helps us to understand, to tailor the programs to better meet your needs, both before the program starts and now when we're, we're not ending the program yet, but before we go into the Q&A. And now I'm going to ask um, Misty to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and Misty will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your telephone keypad. If your question has been answered, 
and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, you may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question for our online persistence for Dr. Hussein. What can you tell us about the P10 gene problem and breast cancer? Um, so um, P10 um, is a, um, a germline mutation that is known to um, cause a syndrome called the Calvin syndrome. And uh, this is a syndrome that uh, carries a high risk for developing breast cancer in a person's lifetime. So in the families with Cowden syndrome, um, about 80% of those um, um, have the P10 germline mutation and uh, the females um, with Cowden syndrome have about a, almost 50% lifetime risk for developing breast cancer. So it is definitely one of the genes that we test for in our germline panels for the patients who have red flags in their family history, so multiple family history um, or multiple family members with breast cancer, or who get diagnosed with breast cancer at a very um, early age. Just one last thing, so it is not one of the genetic mutations, if detected, that has a strong recommendation for doing prophylactic mastectomy, but we normally would recommend increased surveillance uh, above what we recommend for the average woman. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and um, for Dr. Um, Chris, are there guidelines for using biomarkers? Uh, there are. Um, for uh, lung cancers, the NCCN, a uh, commonly used guideline by medical oncologists in the U.S., they recommend uh, PD-L1 testing uh, and also uh, testing for six specific genes by a, uh, a broad uh, NGS panel. So, yes, very specific things are recommended uh, for your docs. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Benson, um, how, how does targeted therapy with solid cancer tumors differ from other cancers? Well, um, we generally speak of two really big uh, groups of uh, cancers known as the solid tumors, which you heard about uh, today, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, and then the uh, hematologic malignancy such as leukemia. And across the spectrum of various cancers, um, the research has been consistent in looking for specific molecular or genomic events uh, for which drugs can be developed, and that's across the board. And so when we talk about targeted therapies, we're really targeting a biological pathway or other phenomenon uh, which um, can help in uh, either destroying the tumor or at least controlling it. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so, um, so the question is for Dr. Kavarasi. Where can I do more re personal research on biomarkers? Uh, sure. So um, Generally, depending on your tumor type, you've probably had some sequencing studies done, and hopefully you've been able to get a copy of that report from your oncologist. Um, so the mutations that are listed on that report 
um, are, are generally the you know important mutations that your tumor has. Um, so you know, what I would suggest is making an appointment with your oncologist to review that report um, to learn about you know, any specific targeted therapies for those mutations that you have, any potential clinical trials for those mutations. Um, and um, there's a lot of information behind the scenes, too, that kind of gets buried in the report. And those are things that at the present time we don't really know a lot about, but maybe in the future they'll be relevant. So it's always good to hang on to that report and, you know, maybe different stages of your disease as you're trying different therapies to kind of keep those in mind and see if the field has changed so that you might be eligible for different therapies. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and um, for Dr. Chris, um, how do diagnostic technologies play um, a role in staging cancer when biopsy is risky? Um, so it, it, today, the uh, blood tests do not play a role in staging. Um, we're still for staging um, and diagnosis of cancer. There, there must be a biopsy. I, I have to say that um, it is very, very, very rare that a biopsy cannot be performed, or an examination of a, a body fluid that can yield cancer cells uh, to a pathologist uh, to examine and make the diagnosis of cancer. So, it's a very, very rare situation where a biopsy cannot be performed. Excellent. And um, I'm going to ask each of you as we conclude the program to just give everyone a, like a, about a minute takeaway from your perspective um, on today's program. So, Dr. Chris, if we could start with you. Um, you know, we we talked about so many things today, and it is so uh, technically uh, complicated. Uh, I urge you not to take on the responsibility of learning uh, everything that uh, PhDs in molecular biology have learned uh, in, in their uh, college and postgraduate training. Um, you need to work with your health professionals to have things explained to you uh, in a way that makes sense, that gives you the information to help you uh, make decisions. And please don't be uh, embarrassed or ashamed to say you need more uh, understanding of, uh, of these very complicated technical questions. In essence, in, in the bottom line, they're pretty simple, the mutations there are not, but getting there is, is tough. Go to your health professionals for advice. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Benson, would you to take away for people I, today? Well, I certainly agree with Dr. Chris. In fact, a lot of what we've talked about today represents fairly recent research, and the technology is just uh, explosive. And it's why, as uh, healthcare people, we are constantly studying and learning. And um, it, it is immensely complicated. And what I would hope is that some of what was presented today would uh, be able to be utilized in discussions with your healthcare professionals um, who have the background and who are constantly studying and learning as technology develops and new treatments are uh, are also uh, developed. So. You really need to speak with the healthcare team, and I, I hope 
this information provides you some, you know, guidance as to what to talk about. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Hussain? Uh, well, I think if you listen to everything that we're talking about and me listening to all of my colleagues here, uh, I think I, I hear a lot of hope about how um, diagnostic technologies and um, other modalities of treatment other than good old chemotherapy, like use of immunotherapy and targeted therapies that are usually a lot better tolerated with an overall improvement in quality of life and longevity in general. Um, I like to say that the fact that everybody who's listening in is attending such a workshop shows that they really care and the um, only way to keep moving this forward is by participation in clinical trials for sure. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussain. And Dr. Calvarasi? Yeah, thank you all so much for coming today and showing interest in the topic. Um, yeah, I would just say like, I'm um, still pretty early in my career and a lot of the techniques and um, changes in the field that I've talked about have really happened in the last um, few years, certainly the, the last 10 years and many just in the last few years. So it's an area of a lot of active research, a lot of progress, uh, and, you know, I can't wait to see what happens in the next few years and, and what benefit that's going to bring to all of you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal on today's program, just an amazing program today. You know, we've done this program in the past, but I think both between the speakers and our, our wonderful participants with great questions has really um, made this very, very special program today. Um, I want to thank everybody for being on this program today. I want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that although we have questions that could go on well into the afternoon, uh, later all different time zones, so at least another hour or so, um, I did want to be respectful of the time. So I want to thank you all for participating today. Um, and I hope you'll heed our speaker's recommendation that you take this information that you've learned back to your treating healthcare team and work with them, ask questions. and. Any question you have, ask it over and over again until you understand. Um, and you can make those meetings in person, or you can do them as a telehealth, telemedicine appointment. But be sure you understand. That's really important. And work with your healthcare team. Um, and I think, as um, our speakers have said, there's a great deal of promise right now in the treatment of cancer that wasn't there before, a lot of ways of identifying um, the type of cancer you have, the treatments you need. And that's really very important um, to really um, work with your healthcare team around these issues. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.